Chapter Six, Part One of Brewing by A. Cheston Chapman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Six, Fermentation, Part One. The wort having been cooled to about sixty degrees Fahrenheit passes from the refrigerator to the vessel in which the process of fermentation is to be carried out. Here the requisite amount of yeast is added, and the contents of the vessel are thoroughly mixed. Before proceeding farther, it will be necessary to devote some little space to the consideration of yeast as a living organism, and then to discuss at somewhat greater length the nature of the process of fermentation so far as it is at present known. If a little ordinary brewer's yeast be mixed with water and examined by means of the microscope, it will be found to consist of a number of bodies, some approaching the spherical in their contour, others being more or less ovid. Figure 4. Each of these is a self-contained organism, consisting of a single cell. On examining these cells more closely, it will be seen that each is bounded by a cell wall, which encloses the protoplasm and other cell contents. In the younger cells, the protoplasmic contents are clear and transparent, but as the cell grows older, the protoplasm becomes more granular in character, and one or more cavities, known as vacuoles, may be observed. These vacuoles consist of the cell juice, which at certain stages of development is disseminated throughout the protoplasm, but later tends to collect in one or more parts of the cell. These cells are very minute, having an average diameter of only one one hundred and twentieth millimeter, one three thousandth of an inch, and an estimated volume of point zero 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 four cubic millimeter. It has been calculated that an ounce of pressed yeast would contain no fewer than 50,000 million cells. Minute as they are, however, each of these cells is the seat of vital processes of the greatest complexity, and may, without exaggeration, be said to constitute a laboratory in which are carried out chemical changes which the most highly trained modern chemist is powerless to imitate. If a little young yeast is examined microscopically, it will be seen that many of the cells are not single, but have smaller cells attached to them, whilst in some cases chains of three, four, or even more may be observed. Figure 5. This is the chief mode of reproduction, namely by budding. The bud occurs first as a small protuberance on the surface of the cell. This quickly increases in size until it has attained roughly the dimensions of the parent cell, after which it becomes detached, leading a separate existence, and in turn reproducing by the same process. It often happens that before the offspring cell has separated from the parent cell, it has itself commenced to bud, and so chains or clusters of connected cells may often be seen. Yeast is capable of reproducing itself in another manner than by budding, namely by the formation of internal spores or ascospores. The conditions which favor this mode of reproduction are the employment of young and vigorous cells, a moist surface, plenty of air, and a suitable temperature, usually about 25 degrees Celsius. Under these circumstances, and at the end of about 24 hours, certain changes will be seen to be taken place in the protoplasmic contents of many of the cells. The protoplasm becomes at first more granular, and then signs of segregation become visible, the contents of the cell separating into several ill-defined portions, usually from two to four, but in some species as many as eight. A little later, these segregated portions of highly granular protoplasm become invested with a membrane, and it can then be seen that the original cell contains sometimes one, 
but usually two or more well-defined spores figure six during the formation and development of the spores the parent cell swells considerably and in the end bursts liberating the spores each of which constitutes an individual yeast cell and is capable of reproducing in the ordinary way by budding during recent years much study has been devoted to the precise mechanism of reproduction in the case of yeast for long it has been known that every yeast cell contains a nucleus but the true nature and function of this has only comparatively recently been made clear through the work of johnson and leblanc and especially of wager and peniston the last mentioned authors have shown that every cell possesses a nucleus and a nucleosis and they have adduced a good deal of evidence to prove that the former is identical with the main vacuole of the cell and that the latter is a homogeneous body which is always found to be in close contact with the nuclear vacuole figure seven during budding division of the nucleus takes place accompanied by constriction into two approximately equal parts one of which passes into the bud whilst the other remains in the parent cell during ascospore formation the vacuole disappears and only the nucleosus remains this however divides into two by a process of constriction and each of these two parts again divides into two so that four nuclei are formed each of which becomes the nucleus of a spore and consequently of a new cell barker has called attention to a process of true conjugation in the case of certain species in which he gave the name zygosaccharomyces under certain conditions cells of this yeast formed buds which gradually developed into long beak-like processes when the beaks of two adjacent cells touched one another union took place the tips of the beaks disappeared and a tubular connection was so established between the two cells each of which then produced one or more spores interesting as these phenomena are to the biologist they do not closely concern the practical brewer since under the ordinary conditions of the brewery yeast always reproduces by the process of budding unlike certain other unicellular organisms and the higher plants the yeast cell contains no chlorophyll and is not therefore able to obtain its carbon by the decomposition of carbon dioxide in this respect it resembles the fungi in which great natural family it is included owing to its ordinary mode of reproduction it is classed among the budding fungi and lastly its ability to form ascospores completes its claim to belong to the genus saccharomyces a group which comprises all the important organisms which produce alcoholic fermentation like all fungi the yeast organism uses up oxygen and gives off carbon dioxide and it is for this reason that a supply of oxygen is necessary if the vigor of the yeast is to be maintained during fermentation this point will be referred to again when dealing with the theories which have been put forward to explain the process of fermentation a close investigation of the saccharomyces has revealed the fact that the genus includes a considerable number of species many of these differing widely in their fermentive and other properties and that certain of these species can be again subdivided into races or varieties even at a comparatively early period certain well-marked morphological differences were noticed as the result of microscopical examination thus some yeasts formed spherical or ovid cells whilst others were decidedly ellipsoidal and others elongated and sausage-shaped no great advance however could be made in differentiating between the various species until the late professor e c hansen in eighteen seventy nine showed how it was possible to obtain almost any quantity of yeast by starting with a single cell 
For this purpose a very dilute mixture of yeast and sterilized water is first made, and a little of this is inoculated into a quantity of melted wort gelatin, that is to say, a moderately strong malt wort, containing sufficient gelatin to cause it to solidify when cold. A drop of this solution is then examined by means of the microscope to ascertain whether it is sufficiently dilute in respect of yeast cells, that is to say, whether the cells are well separated one from another and are so far apart that the colonies resulting from their development could not possibly meet. If such is the case, a drop of the gelatin mixture is spread out in a thin layer on a microscope cover glass on which it solidifies. It is then placed, with gelatin downward, over a small glass cell containing a drop of water to keep the gelatin surface moist. Several yeast cells, which are well separated from one another, are then picked out by microscopical examination and their position on the glass cover marked. The slide is then kept at a suitable temperature and in a few days the development will have proceeded so far that the resulting colonies will be visible to the naked eye. When this is the case, a very small piece of sterile platinum wire is dipped into any one of the colonies and then dropped into a suitable flask containing sterile wort. In the course of several days the wort will be found to be in a state of active fermentation and a sufficient quantity of yeast will have been formed for the pitching of a still larger quantity of wort. Working in this way, and pitching each time into vessels of larger size, it will be seen that practically any quantity of yeast can be prepared, the whole of which has originated from a single cell. Pure cultures of the various Saccharomyces having thus been prepared, it was found that morphological characters were frequently useless for the purpose of distinguishing between one species and another, for not only did many of these resemble one another somewhat closely in appearance, but the shape of any one species varied within wide limits, depending chiefly upon the conditions under which it had been grown. This method of obtaining pure cultures when used in conjunction with certain other methods of differentiation, such as the behavior of the yeast towards certain selected carbohydrates, and the optimum temperatures for ascospore and film fermentation, has enabled Simotechnologists to isolate and describe many distinct species, of some of which numerous varieties are known. It should be said at once, however, that only a few of these are of industrial importance. For technical purposes, the yeast may be divided into two classes, the cultivated and the wild yeast. The former includes brewer's yeast in all its varieties, that is to say, the yeast which has from the very earliest times been used for the production of alcoholic beverages, and has, in a sense, been cultivated for the purpose. This yeast represents, so far as is known, one species, namely Saccharomyces cerevisiae, although many races and varieties are known which differ considerably in certain respects, as, for instance, in the rapidity with which they bring about the fermentive change, the degree of attenuation, i.e., fermentation, which they can affect, and the flavor of the beer produced. Of the Saccharomyces Cerevisiae. There are two main types known respectively as top and bottom yeast. The former rises to the surface during fermentation and is the yeast used in English breweries, whilst the latter sinks to the bottom of the fermenting tun and is used in the production of lager beer as brewed on the continent and elsewhere. The wild yeasts are yeasts which occur wild in nature and frequently having their habitat on the surface of ripe fruits, often find their way into the brewery. Some of these wild yeasts, using the term in its widest sense, are capable of fulfilling useful functions in connection with cask fermentation, but others are highly undesirable. 
although in his study of the various diseases to which beer is subject pasteur chiefly concentrated his attention on the bacteria he did not altogether overlook the possibility that certain of the yeasts might be pathogenetic in character it will be obvious however that no definite information in this connection could be obtained until hansen had shown how to discriminate between the various species it was then found that certain species of yeast were as much to be feared as many of the bacteria thus saccharomyces pastorianus one produces a nauseous bitter flavor and a disagreeable smell saccharomyces pastorianus three and saccharomyces ellipsoidius two persistent turbidity saccharomyces anomalous a pronounced fruity flavor saccharomyces elysis a disagreeable bitter flavor and saccharomyces foetidus stench the following photomicrographs will give some idea of the microscopical appearance of a few of these wild yeasts saccharomyces ellipsioideus figure eight saccharomyces pastorianus figure nine saccharomyces anomaleus film figure ten and saccharomyces apiculatus figure eleven the last mentioned organism ought not properly speaking to be included among the saccharomycetes since it has never been observed to form endogenous spores but its appearance is very characteristic and it often finds its way into the cooling wort the following may perhaps be regarded as the more usual ways in which infection with wild yeast takes place one direct aerial infection usually at the refrigerating stage more rarely on the cooler or in the fermenting tun two indirect aerial infection that is to say by dust which has accumulated on prominent internal surfaces of the cooler refrigerator or fermenting tun rooms and which has become dislodged by wind three surface infection or infection due to nests formed in the soft or old parts of fermenting tuns or yeast backs four infection due to unusually impure pitching yeast that is the yeast used to start the fermentation owing to the tendency of culture yeast to oust the wild species especially under the conditions of english brewing it will not often be found that serious trouble can be traced to this cause five infection due to dry hopping that is the introduction of wild yeast with the hops added to the beer in cask how the more important sources of such infection may be guarded against has already been pointed out in the previous chapter since even different races or varieties of the cultivated yeast saccharomyces cerevisiae exhibit different properties the introduction of the method of preparing pure cultures from a single cell naturally raised the question whether certain selective varieties or even species might not be successfully used in practice such pure cultures were first introduced by hansen himself into certain danish breweries with excellent results and the method spread so rapidly on the continent as almost to constitute a revolution in continental brewing practice for each brewery experiments had first to be made in order to find out which of a number of varieties was the one best suited to the conditions obtaining in that brewery and to the type of beer required and then that yeast was cultivated in the necessary quantity there can be no doubt that as a general rule the results have been very satisfactory beers of greater stability of more uniform character and of better flavor resulting a good many attempts to introduce the use of selected single-cell yeasts into english breweries have however met with much less success 
One reason for this is that the conditions obtaining in most English breweries are such as to result in the production of a definite type of yeast, which gives the exact class of beer required, and which can without any special steps be kept practically pure, that is, free from bacteria and other yeasts within the limits necessary for successful working. In the second place, there is a greater difference in character between the main fermentation and the secondary or cask fermentation in English high fermentation beers than is the case in lager beers such as are brewed on the continent, and it has not hitherto been found possible to obtain with a single-cell yeast the proper cask fermentation which is so important a feature in English brewing. Having now considered yeast from the purely biological standpoint, it may be convenient to refer briefly to the question of its nutrition, that is to say, to the various substances which it requires for its healthy development, and then to consider how far these are naturally supplied in the brewer's wort. It has been pointed out above that yeast, like all organisms which are devoid of chlorophyll, cannot obtain its carbon from carbon dioxide, and it is, therefore, necessary to supply it in some soluble and assimilable form. The various carbohydrates represent one such form, and it is from these that carbon is, to some extent, but not by any means entirely obtained, and the necessary vital energy indirectly derived. Of the protoplasm, nitrogen is the most significant and important constituent, and dried yeast contains about 8% or more of that element, which is equivalent to 50% or more of protein matters. For the manufacture of its protoplasm, therefore, it is essential that sufficient nitrogen should be supplied to the yeast organism, and in the form in which it can be most readily absorbed and assimilated. Yeast is, in fact, able to satisfy its nitrogen requirements when presented with such simple forms as ammonium salts, but its development is more vigorous when the nitrogen is applied to it in the form of amino compounds, amides and peptones, that is to say, when it is grown in solutions containing the products of the hydrolysis of proteins. The more complex proteins cannot apparently be utilized, since they are not diffusible and cannot therefore penetrate the cell wall. Another element necessary to the life activity and well-being of the yeast organism is phosphorus, which is present in the form of nucleoproteins and to some extent as phosphate. Of the inorganic elements, potassium, magnesium, and to a less extent calcium, are indispensable as may be gathered from the following analysis of the ash of yeast. Average composition of the ash of yeast, Lintner. Potash, K2O, with a little soda, 33.49. Magnesia, MgO, 6.12. Lime, CaO, 5.47. Oxide of iron, 0 0.50. Phosphoric acid, P2O5, 50.60. Sulfuric acid, SO3, 0 0.56. Silica, 1.34. Matters undetermined, 1.92. Total, 100%. The need for oxygen has already been referred to. Now it so happens that all these necessary nutritive substances are normally present in malt wort, which constitutes, in fact, an almost ideal liquid for the nourishment of yeast. There are the chirohydrates, sugars, the amides, e.g., aspergin, peptones and other diffusible and assimilable nitrogenous substances, phosphorus as phosphate, and sufficient quantities of the salts of potassium, magnesium, and calcium. It does, however, happen occasionally, 
owing to the employment of malts of abnormal character or to the use of larger proportions than usual of grain or sugar adjuncts that the warts are deficient in the precise kinds of neutrogenous and other nutriment needed by the yeast for its proper development in such cases the appearance of the yeast in the fermenting tun is such as to indicate that it is not receiving the food it requires and the brewer usually endeavors to make good the deficiency by adding to the fermenting wort a quantity of so-called yeast food containing the needful nutrient materials and specially prepared for the purpose pressed yeast that is yeast practically free from extraneous water contains as a rule about seventy five per cent of water present of course in the liquid protoplasm of the cells the following analysis shows the average composition of dry yeast and will suffice to give some idea of the proportions in which its more important proximate constituents are present average composition of dry yeast proteins and other nitrogenous substances fifty one point eight yeast gum and other carbohydrate matter twenty nine point five fat one point zero mineral matter eleven point zero matters undetermined including some cellulose six point seven total one hundred percent end of chapter six part one